Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible actor. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis and part late night chat in the theatre bar, this is Hear Me Out and I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Freddie Fox. Here we are the first time I've seen you in what feels like a million I feel years. I should explain, yes, in case there are odd sounds throughout this, that we are sharing a drink mm. over Zoom as we record because I've just completed on a home today. <laughs> and it's my first home. That and it's is mental. Just so cool. Can you tell us anything about the home? Um, I can tell you that it's not in London. Oh, that's a very good thing, I think. Which I think is how you get a home rather than a flat because if one were to stay in London, <laughs> the notion of getting a full on house just becomes totally. Impossible. So it is a house. It's very rustic and rural. But did you grow up in London? I did. I grew up in sort of Maidavale, Little Venice area. So you are a city boy. I'm sort of a city boy, but I was brought up so much of my childhood was spent in Dorset, which is where I went to school uh, mm. later and where my family now live. I mean, my dad, dad's more or less kind of retired now to, to, to Dorset. And that is very much where I feel my my spiritual home is, is, it? is, is out, yeah, outside of London. Yeah, because that is always how I felt. And I do find it really interesting when you chat to people that are real city people at heart. They find the countryside very beautiful, but so boring. Well, I always wonder, I, I remember hearing, because one of my heroes is David Bowie. And I remember him hearing a quote of, of his, which is that he just hated being in the countryside. And I was like, oh, you're so almost perfect, David. You're so <laughs> almost perfect. <laughs> but I mean, for you know, for him or for anyone who has a life that is about, uh, you know, properly urban living, parties, mm, you know, music, mm. cultural experience. It, it, it is a kind of, you know, London is the centre. Yeah, we are so lucky. It's an incredible city. So, thank you for coming on the show, Freddie. Oh my God, such a pleasure. What a treat. Just lovely to be able to revisit these wonderful speeches. And I have to say, you've picked one of my all-time favourites. So this is a good one. So go on, tell everyone what you've picked. 
I have picked the St. Crispin's Day, or St. Crispian, depends how you pronounce it, St. Crispian's Day uh, speech from Henry V. And there, there are many reasons for this, which we'll get into, but um, at the bottom of it, it's just an amazing piece of writing, you know, and, what, yeah. and one that I've dreamt since I was at drama school or applying for drama school to, to play one day. Was it your audition speech? It was, yeah. It was. It was my Shakespearean audition speech for all the drama schools. And I only got into Guildhall. So, I mean, but it that Guildhall was unfortunately the school I really wanted to go to. I was about to say, it's a good one. I, I know. And I, I I remember doing the speech in conjunction with like a weird hodgepodge of other things. I did it with a very sort of posh piece of George Bernard Shaw that my dad sort of forced me into doing because <laughs> he thought it was proper writing. And then uh, I did a piece of Glengarry Glen Ross, oh, which thrill. I was, I mean, couldn't be more wrong for. I mean, I, wa- <laughs> I, wa- I wandered into the audition room, you know, wearing chinos and moccasins and a sort of, you know, I mean, looking ridiculous. I mean, frankly, a person who'd never lived any life beyond sort of the privileges of public school is pathetic. And I and I came in and did this kind of like, you know, impression of Alec Baldwin. It was, it was stupid. Anyway, I then did Henry V and, and uh, this piece of George Bernard Shaw. And I remember one of the panellists mm. was Daniel Evans, an actor and director and now artistic director I yeah. admire hugely. And he looked up at me and said, that was the most preposterous audition I've ever seen. <laughs> But then they said, we'll have you, we'll take you. I guess I must you. have made them laugh. I had a similar thing. So I only got into Lambda. And again, when I say only, like you're saying, just Guildhall, it's not, these are obviously incredible schools, but it is interesting. I don't know what your experience was. I got rejected from every other school without recall. Like every other school didn't even want to look twice at me. But then you managed to get <laughs> one of the 27 places or something in another one. But anyway, I had a similar thing where I did an audition for Lambda where it was um, Mark Bell who went on to direct all the, the play that goes wrong and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And he said something like, okay, can you not shout the next one at me? Oof. Yeah. Oof, harsh. But then he was the one who obviously get, who gave me a recall. So I never know. I, I've, I've always sort of wanted to maybe just once be on the other side of the table just to see what, what what it is about, you know, someone doing the piece again and pretending to be oh a piece of spaghetti actually makes you go, oh, yeah, no, this person really got it, you know? Well, again, that same director, uh, Mark Bell, that same director and teacher in my recall told me to do something like cling film. Yeah. And I think in a certain way, there's a bullying culture. There's yeah. a bit of a how much can you take? How much yeah. can you take and keep going? Which is, in, which is, you know, there's so much of our profession is in that resilience that, you know, you do need. And if you can get through the kind of feeling of terrible shame and like you've done something awfully wrong and but then come back at it and try it and do it like a piece of cling film. Um, you maybe, maybe, maybe you've got what it, what it takes. You're made for life in the theatre. <laughs> well, we can't thank Kling Film for very much, but we could definitely thank it for, for you being the actress you are. Thank you so much. Um, before we move on from this, I have to say, I actually, when you said you want to be on the other side, I have a friend at the moment who is, uh, she's done a lot of directing for drama schools and she's mm. been asked to help with some of the sort of virtual auditions. And she's had some excellent tips, which I'll share with you now. Mm. Don't do Fleabag, unless you're Phoebe Waller-Bridge. <laughs> right. Don't do anything sexy. Maybe that's where I was winning. I was just so unsexy. That was, <laughs> that's what did it. 
don't attempt a full face of contoured makeup. Mm. A few years later, I probably would have done that, but I hadn't mm. got into my makeup experimentation by that point. So sorry. Back to Henry V. Uh-huh. So you picked this as your audition speech. So you loved it back then. I mean, Henry V is is one of my all-time favourite Shakespeare plays. Mm. And I think the fact that Crispin's Day is such a great speech is even more amazing when you consider the other speeches within that play yeah. that are insanely great. So why do you love this one so much? Why do I love this one so much? Well, I suppose it goes back to, to loving the character, the part, and why it's a part I so want to play. Is you've seen in the preceding play, Henry the Fourth, well, one and two, an extraordinary character arc of this guy who's a sort of layabout, loutish kind yeah. of prince who hasn't really got any prospects, but somewhere you sense and you begin to feel there are hidden depths. And then over the course of the next two plays, the, those depths are revealed to be a kind of ocean of, of, of resourcefulness, of courage, of manipulation, of real elan. And it reminds me, I think by the time you get to Crispin's Day, he reminds me of someone who I've kind of admired. I mean, again, a completely different political context, but a very similar kind of charisma hmm. is Fidel Castro. I've always loved mm. Cuba. I've always, the history of Cuba. I've longed to go there. I've be, tried to go there many times and uh, for whatever reason work, usually I've not been able to go. But I've watched a lot of documentaries on him and seen lots of pictures of him in the way when he was talking to people. And he has, in Crispin's day, qualities that are embodied by those great stars that make you go I would follow you to the ends of the earth and he does it with humor he does it with sort of hot blood and with great sort of compassion as well as manipulation it's a wonderful smorgasbord and composite of all these different leadership qualities and whether you look back on why Henry V was trying to steal bits of France off the French, and you look at it through, you know, the post post colonial sort of eyes. Okay, yeah, he's probably not the great, not all good, not all necessarily all good, mm, but, like David Bowie, not all good. I mean, <laughs> exactly. But uh, it, if you take that sort of postmodern reading of of the politics aside, it's an amazing display from a from a real star, mm. and I guess that's why it's a, a dream for for me to play one day. I think it's interesting you mentioned the plays before because you're so right. I hadn't even thought of that, that this play comes in the context of like a massive series. Like the history plays, they almost all interlink. It's like a great TV series. Absolutely. It's exactly that. It's like a kind of, it's closer to The Sopranos or an episode of The Wire or, or I mean, a series, of five series of The Wire. It's got that, um, as you say, interconnectivity, which you know, Shakespeare, you know, slightly fudges in order to make sure that certain people are there at the right time. But it's what Peter Peter Morgan's doing in The Crown. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. And I feel it will never not be relevant. It will never not be exciting. It, It always is an examination of all the key things that human beings have built their societies on, you know, whether it be, you know, power, money, friendship blah 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 it's all there mm. and and in the immediate immediately preceding the speech yeah henry has gone down into the, the the camp of his soldiers and found that they're all 
almost on the verge of mutiny. They're, they're all terrified of dying and feeling like he's not going to... He, maybe Henry V won't even ride into battle. Maybe he'll ransom himself and get away scot-free. And he's like, it brings up for him, I think, a huge amount of frustration and rage because it goes back to... Falstaff and all those soldiers in the earlier plays that Henry always judged as being ultimately, I think, weak. And mm. then he's developed to this point where he goes, I can't r- fly off the handle. I have to accept the responsibility that comes with power, even if it's irksome and not particularly pleasant. And I'm going to rally these troops for, for something that I believe is important to us all and to our to our country. Yeah. He has so many moments where I feel like he has these real, what I keep wanting to say is punchline, but it's not funny, but these moments that are like these real full stops on Mm. a conversation. It's like, and let that be the last word on that. Yeah, exactly. Are so, I think, iconic of Henry V. And one of my favourite lines of all Shakespeare is the moment when they ask the French army if they can have a bit of a reprieve because their soldiers are tired and ill. And there's almost that very like, that weird nobility of war which Mm. is Mm. surely you'll let us have a break because it's not a fair battle Mm. whilst we're starving and the french basically go no fight us tomorrow or you can give up if you want to give up and henry has a line and i'm going to totally bastardize it here probably but he says something like we we would not wish a battle as we are but as we are we will not shun it it's a great maxim for a lot of life, isn't it? it? Whether it be, you know, the most mundane of tasks or big life decisions, you know, so often you're not ready for them, but you just have to do it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, You'd be a great Henry V. You could be a fantastic... <gasps> you've got all that kind of, like, gumption and, you know... Stop, Freddie. We can end the interview there. Shall That's we? Yeah, brilliant. call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't take that from you. I wouldn't take that from you. So you've never had the chance yet, but you would like to play Henry I keep putting it out into the universe, and this is another example of me putting it out into the universe. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But my dad, you know, always says they're they're just worth reading a lot and learning speeches from because even in this the doing of the speech a few times or reading the play again, you're just sharpening something. The language mm. is so good, and it's so by far superior to anything almost ever else that is written do it just have it in your have it in your locker and he's he's right I you know I I do admire him immensely for just being able to pluck these amazing moments of wisdom from the canon of Shakespeare that he can apply to all sorts of moments of life which he does and often it's incredibly irritating and pretentious but then there are moments where you go oh god yes Yes, absolutely. That's put that moment into perspective for me. And, Mm. you know, the language is just extraordinary. What is your favourite Shakespeare part that you have been able to do? Oh, well, that's a very leading question there. It's not. As I said said it, I thought, I don't mean... So Freddie was in a version of A Midsummer Night's Dream that I produced some years ago I mean that experience of that play was amazing and I and you know I will treasure that actually and Mm. that really runs through me and I would love to do that play again one day you know I think probably, though, generally, I think because of the history that I've had with Romeo and Juliet by doing it twice and the second time doing it under such strange circumstances. Of course, please explain, please explain. I played Romeo in 
Romeo and Juliet at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield in 2015 and had a wonderful time doing that. Who was your Juliet? Mordeveth Clark, the now very, very successful and brilliant actress who's in St Maud. And anyway, I sort of put it to bed and it was done and it was a happy memory. And then my agent called me one day. I was down in Dorset and my dear friend Lily James, who I've known since we were at drama school, mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we, we arrived in the same year, was playing it for Kenneth Branagh in the West End. And I, I suppose there was a time gone by when Lily and I had imagined doing it together and taking it you know, around together and, and it didn't happen. And so when I got a call in Dorset with my family where there is no phone reception at all, never have I had any phone reception there. And my phone rings and I'm like, oh, what's that? And it's my agent saying, listen, Richard Madden, who was playing Romeo, has had a, an injury to his ankle, which, you know, was really sad and tough for him. And he had to pull out of the show. And the understudy too, another lovely actor called Tom Hansen, he had to pull out because he'd done his knee in a fight sequence when he was understudying. And this, and Angara said, is there any way you remember the lines? And then maybe you and Lily can have this moment of the thing that, you know, you once imagined once yeah. upon a time. And you were like, I'm on a train already. <laughs> well, kind of. But I was like, do I remember this? It was a year ago that I did the play. How quickly between the phone call and the performance was it? Did you literally have to go on that night? I went up the next day. Mm. No, I did. I, I think it was about, I had about 48, just over 48 hours. And then I went in and did the day's rehearsal and the plot of the whole thing and the new fight sequences. And there were some cuts in my version that were different to their version. So you had to cut it around. And then we were on the following night. So it was about sort of from the the day I heard about it to the day of doing it, it was about three days. And it was... I mean, singularly the most frightening experience of my life. Oh, I love that shit. But also the most wonderfully rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that kind of stuff in theatre. I have to say, I actually get real kicks during previews because I don't know whether people who maybe aren't in the theatre industry don't realise just how much shows change during the preview period. Mm. And that preview period can be two or three days or it can be two or three weeks. And so much changes and it's a bit like not quite as stressful as your situation jumping in in the middle of it but I really get a buzz from that okay tonight you've got to implement these changes and you get to a point where sometimes you're walking on stage and your brain's going something is different in this scene (laughs) I don't remember what it is but I remember that at some point in this scene I'm meant to do something different and you just have to pray that when you get to that line or that moment that your body kicks in and goes that's it this is and, the thing you're meant to do. And it does normally, weirdly. Like, yeah. I know you're like, I, I remember giving being given something like 60 notes before a, a preview <laughs> of the Judas Kiss. And I almost, I, I, I've got in a strop with the director. I got in a real strop. I was like, how am I supposed to remember 60 notes? And he said, just, it's okay. You don't need to get them all, but you, you'll, you'll remember them. And I was like, I yeah. won't. I can't even remember how to walk now. I don't remember <laughs> how to, I can't, I, do, I mean, my hands. What's the, my name? What's my name? How would I do my hands? And I, and I can't even think, I can't remember these notes. And you get on stage and then something happens. Something, you know, yeah. you, the fear or whatever just makes you go, and you're super focused and in you go. Yeah. Well, that's often when the best acting happens as well, is when you're not thinking about it. So in a weird way, 60 notes is better than two, because like two notes, you'd be aware, you'd be ready for them. Yeah, yeah you'd be like, I've got to do that thing perfectly. Or 60, you've just got to let it all wash over you and hope that yeah, yeah. it all makes sense. <laughs> that 20 stick. Uh, yeah, and it's, 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 it shakes you up. And it was like that. It was a very, very extreme example of that feeling of being... Yeah. I remember actually coming on the first night, Yeah. and I'd asked... Ken Browner, if he would speak, can you at least tell them that it's my 
I've had no time for this that I might end up crushing one of them as I jump off the stage vomiting as I go <laughs> and he said yeah no, I'll do a speech and of course when the audience hear that they get very excited it's a little bit like oh my god anything could happen he could die yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> and, uh, and I remember being a little bit late uh, to the past door for beginners and the whole cast were looking at the past door. Like I came into like like a like a like a, a firing squad of eye lines, just going, thinking that I'd run away. <laughs> and they thought that I wasn't going to show. I'd literally write, yeah. Anyway, the feeling at the end of that must have been amazing. Doing it with your best friend as well, like that, you know, and having that. I couldn't have done it without Lil, you know, and I wouldn't have been there without Lil. But to to do it with your friend and having that element of it for free was 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 quite something how long did you get to do it how many nights did you do we did three weeks in the end oh that's nice but hard for, i mean obviously hard for you but hard for lily as well like that's a real challenge when you're doing something to adapt to because even though you were obviously doing your best to step into the blocking the like you were saying about the fight choreography all of that you're still you. You're still going to be a very different Romeo from whatever Richard Madden was doing. I th- oh, I think so. But I, th- in a way, I mean, you know what it's like when you do a long run of a play. I mean, by sort of halfway through, there are nights where you're really feeling it and there are nights where you couldn't be anywhere. I mean, you're not even close to the play. You're not even close to the theatre. You're so checked out that you're doing your, your shopping, you know, in your head and you're bored. Yeah, and yeah. I think probably when something like that happens, you're like, oh, I'm not I'm not bored anymore. I'm really absolutely I, I'm really focused because anything could go wrong. And I think in that way, that really, I don't know, breathe, put a bit of a little bit of electricity into it for, for a little while. You're so right. We actually had that in um, the last show I did before all of this ended which was a day in the death of joe egg i remember us finding out that patricia hodge couldn't be on for a couple of nights and in a weird way all of us were like this is great not to not have patricia because she's amazing but this is going to be amazing to have her incredible understudy becky hanswick came on but just to like you said make us all sit up again and really pay attention and have to hold them as well because you know, you've got to support them and make sure that they feel secure and that they can do their job to help you do your job. I mean, it's such a... That's right. such a gorgeous thing. You listen to stuff again. Mm. And you go... And you then you suddenly examine moves and you've done and blocking that you've done and you've gone, why did I do any of that? You suddenly hear it for the first time again. It's it's um quite exciting. Yeah. Anyway, look, we must get back to the speech in hand. Yeah. We simply must. We must, we must, we must. And uh, my favourite question to always ask is, is there a favourite line or a favourite image? Uh, uh, in the speech or in the play? Oh, ooh. Go on, I'll let you do both. I love, um, there's a bit in the in the speech that he has before, just after he's been to the camp with the other soldiers, and he's sort of blasting um, having literally... So much responsibility and none and and no quietess. No, he can't, you know, a, a soldier with nothing, you know, nothing to worry about except his, the immediate, you know, thoughts of the battle tomorrow can sleep quietly. Whereas he has got so much going through his head and so much responsibility and so much worry that he's, you know, going to kill all these all his soldiers by going out against this massive French army that he's like I can't I have I can't relax I have nothing and I would give up all of this kingly um uh you know trappings just to have a night where I you know of sleep and and 
ignorance is bliss, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And he has this line which I just loved. The line is, not all these thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest crammed with distressful bread it's just so good i mean these wonderful images but i just love that thrice gorgeous ceremony all these things that i have that i don't want yeah that moment reminds me slightly of that idea that you see in quite a few of shakespeare's plays where a character wants to sort of show their humanity either they're a royal and they're sort of deemed like above everyone else or they're I'm thinking of like Shylock in Merchant of Venice and he's sort of deemed below everyone else but either way you get these characters when they try to go look I am human I am actually like your average person in these ways like the if you cut me do I not bleed and I remember seeing um, Eddie Redmayne doing Richard II at the Donmar warehouse and finding him amazing in it I was so moved by the moment when Richard has a line where he sort of says like I you know I eat bread like you I feel grief I need friends Mm. he says at one point and I always find it a really uh moving idea uh in many Shakespeare plays anyway uh go on in this speech uh pick a favorite line from this particular speech please and oh sorry what is St Crispin's Day Ah, do you know what? Don't ask me that because I don't actually, having not having not studied the speech for some time, I can't tell you. But it is a day. I'm going to look it up. Go on, do the research. Tell me what Christmas Day is whilst I look okay. for my line. Okay. Okay, so it's a feast day, like mm. all good holidays. Great. Always October the 25th. Mark it in your diary from this day forth. Right. And then basically everything on the internet is like, it's a fabulous day that Henry V talks about. <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't know very much about it. Clearly, isn't there very, there's not very much to say about it. Um, I think probably it's when he starts talking about it. He starts, I mean, you could play it so many ways. He can start sort of lambasting them and angry with them, or he can tune into, you know, what they need immediately. But I think as it goes on, it it finds a sort of a playfulness, a humour. And I love, he that shall live this day and see old Mm. age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, tomorrow is St Crispian. And then I love this image. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Mm. And then it, and so I think that, and then into old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. <laughs> Do you know, this is the only thing in the world that matters because actually he's right. There are significant moments in your life that if you make it through them are the are probably the only things that you have at the end of your life. These amazing memories of a few choice achievements that you've had and yeah. you go oh, I, that happened to me. And that gives my life meaning. And I think that is, I mean, whether it be a battle or whether it be a film you've made or whether it be a kiss you had or whatever it is, those, there are a few moments that go to the Premier League of our memories <laughs> that define our lives and make our lives worth something. And I think that's what he's putting, saying there. And I just think it's, and he's manipulating them doing it. He's razzing them up. He's getting what he needs out of them. 
but it's true and beautiful. And there are so many things here that we know from other things. I mean, we know we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It's one of the most iconic lines in Shakespeare. But also the notion of band of brothers has been taken by Spielberg, turned into a massive you know, TV series that defined a moment in television. And the notion of band of brothers is something that it must be above so many people's walls on so many people's walls so many pub signs so many things it's part of our culture that one phrase and you forget with so much Shakespeare that he invented them mm, he came yeah. up with that idea when you go through wonderful plays like this the older you get mm -hmm. the more return you get from them and I think that's why I love it is because I'm totally I'm a novice really you know and there's so much of this so that I don't know. And then when I listen to my dad say some of the speeches and interpret them in a way that I completely didn't hear in my ear and go, oh, that that's what it meant. And that is very exciting, the, the kind of, the, the, the locked treasures that you just need time and experience to help yourself unlock. And then when you get there, the rewards are so massive. And that's great poetry and great storytelling. And so I think that I will be coming yeah. back to this play and this speech Again and again and again, from the age of 18 to, you know, 88, I hope. Yeah. Well, I think we ought to hear it. Thank you so much for picking this speech. It's been so nice to talk about it. No, total pleasure. So this comes on the back of Westmoreland saying, Oh, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. And the king arrives. What's he that wishes so? My cousin? Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are, and now, to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honour. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It earns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honour, I am the most offending soul alive. No, faith my cause, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honour as one man more, methinks, would share from me for the best hope I have. Who oh, do not wish one more? Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach for this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tipped toe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and he will show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget 
Yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, <laughs> be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin's Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile this day, shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Oh, bloody hell, I'll fight. It just makes you just want to go. Yeah! Sign me up. Yeah, it's really good. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristram Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. And I know it's a mini faff, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review would mean the world. Finally, you can find us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out, and we're on YouTube, where you can catch visual clips of the show. Right, that's it. Lucy Eaton, exiting stage left. Mm-hmm.